What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Ali Mosafari to talk about his book, Development, Architecture, and the Formation of Heritage in Late 20th Century Iran. Ali is Senior Research Fellow with the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization at Deakin University, Australia. And he studied architecture at Tehran University and has more than 15 years experience in architecture and urban design in both Iran and Australia. Ali, thank you so much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Of course. Um, I studied architecture in Iran in the 1980s and practiced a bit and then emigrated to Australia, where I also uh, practiced architecture. And then uh, I decided to pursue uh, lines of inquiry uh, into uh, contemporary Iran uh, through a PhD. And... Uh, That took me on a totally separate journey, but I never detached myself uh, from the world of architecture. In fact, uh, I think I've tried to uh, utilize what I learned during my education in in my other forms of thinking and writing, which is mostly about heritage. So I've been in Australia for uh, around 25 years now. And at the moment, as you mentioned earlier, I'm I'm an academic, no, no longer a practicing architect. Great, thank you. And so I'll you know, jump right in. Again, as I hinted before we went on, this is kind of a big, vague question, but I, you know, clearly the idea of nostalgia, tradition, and you've talked about heritage already, very big parts of this book. And so I know that's kind of a big place to start, but could you walk us through a little bit of your discussion of nostalgia, tradition, etc.? Of course. Uh, there's two things. Well, actually, more than two things, but let's let's set them apart. Uh, number one is the question of heritage. Uh, w- what do we mean by heritage in this context? Uh, as I say in the book, I'm referring. To, I'm using heritage as any kind of selective use of the past in the present. So this is not uh, factual history. 
meaning heritage is not necessarily factual history, although it may have a very good factual content, but it's more about imaginations of the past and how we use it. And therefore, it's got politics loaded into it from the start. And it's a processual cultural uh, thing. Um, and so if I park that idea for a second, uh, let's go to another thing that closely relates to heritage, but it's not the same. The ideas of tradition and with it, nostalgia. Uh, please allow me to elaborate why I got into this in the first place. Uh, when I was studying uh, architecture, this is in the early 1980s, a very long time ago indeed. Um, yes, <laughs> um, our education was fueled by tradition and nostalgia for a tradition. Let's not forget that I started uh, studying architecture in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. One of the pillars of the ideology of the Islamic Republic was invocations of tradition. And it, with reference to various traditions, and in uh, uh, chief amongst them, Islamic traditions, uh, it sought ways of legitimation of the, its various discourses. Now, you can imagine in this all sorts of references to Islamic architecture or anything with an Islamic tacked onto it would have currency. Now, um, and it was, for most of us, we could feel the heavy weight of it. Uh, I definitely can speak for myself on, on us, which was very limiting even uh, and prescriptive in even modes of production in, an, in, a, in, in a field like architecture or even fine arts. And it, it was, to me, that was a question as to uh, how, why did that happen? And, and therefore, you could say that it had a therapeutic, therapeutic angle as well, looking at, the, at these things and, and a bit of a reaction to the, to the political establishment. Um, the idea of tradition, however, I learned subsequently, and then it comes in this book as well, as well as in my other works, that it, it wasn't, of course, the invention of the Islamic Republic, as people would very well know, your listeners. Um, it comes from elsewhere. Uh, it is itself an invention, probably modern. One famous traditionalist in Iran uh, said once that uh, the question of tradition only arises in the modern context nobody in the traditional world would ask what tradition is so uh, because they just practice it on a daily basis. Uh, and it is here that ideology seeps in. Uh, in the making of architecture as well as in the making of heritage in contemporary Iran, references to tradition have played a significant role. Now, next to that, that already suggests a nostalgia for a lost period, for a lost time. Now, um, in, in, the, uh, in the actual uh, interpretation of nostalgia, we've got multiple modes of it. So it is not just about loss, although uh, especially those who are in, uh, coming from the more progressive or the left camp in politics have tended to, in, in architecture as well, to interpret it as, as a, a regressive sentiment, as a reactionary sentiment with potentially dangerous outcomes. Uh, whilst that is totally possible, um, scholarship and also other forms of expression uh, have shown that that's not the only way nostalgia works. So we have nostalgia uh, as a means to define a moral community as well, uh, and also as a way to uh, trigger imaginations about a future. So in that sense, nostalgia, tradition, and heritage start to have a synergy. 
as to how they work with the present and the future. And that synergy is very complex because it is not always reactionary. And that's one of the things that the book's is, book, book is trying to show, that there are multiple modes of nostalgia invoked uh, in various projects, and it's not just singular. Now, uh, there is a question, of course, as to why is it that people begin to look at tradition in practice in making these spaces, in in engaging uh, with with their daily lives, uh, uh, what is it that they're missing? And that's the part that the book looks at, because uh, the uh, the core argument here, which evolves around these things, is that uh, we have a um, uh, due to development, due to let's call it historical change, uh, circumstances arise that result in a potential sense of loss that result in the need to mend uh, a sense of self and the imagination of history. And that reinterpretation and reimagination of history uh, is also what gives rise to the notion of heritage, the way I'm using it and deploying it in the book. But that's not just a theoretical thing. The book argues that architecture actually mediates this. Now, I'm going to stop here uh, and allow you to ask the question, if you like. Oh, no, no. So first of all, of course, thank you so much. Always always feel free to elaborate. Uh, You sort of kind of touched upon what I was going to ask next, but I do want to ask you to elaborate. You know, there's a very specific time period the book focuses on, uh, the 1970s to 1990s. And like I said, you, you quickly touched upon it. But of course, I'm always interested when I'm reading a book, you know, why is that important? And of course, in the book, you make it very clear why you focus on it. And but so I was wondering if you could tell our readers why specifically that twenty-year period. I mean, very eventful twenty-year period. Of course, uh, let me give you a quick list of things that happen here, <laughs> because as you say, it's very eventful. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, everybody knows, and I'm and I'm not going chronologically here. I'm just dropping the events. 1979. We have a revolution. Well, who doesn't know about that one? Uh, uh, and we can see the repercussions even up to this very moment that we're speaking, right? Um, but we also had before that, both within Iran and regionally, we had massive developments. Let's remember that uh, regionally speaking and globally speaking, we had the oil crises. We had also the Israeli-Arab confrontations uh, that happened. And these are massive events that one could think, okay, what does that have that have to do with architecture and tradition inside Iran, for example. But the point is that they actually shift the imaginations of how people interpret their identities at a collective level and how the forces globally start operating and and, and weighing up against each other. And therefore, these have repercussions even in the domestic scenes of countries, individual countries. So that these are some of the stuff that happened. But inside Iran, we are coming up with a decade because of rising oil prices, because of rising prosperity based on resources. We're coming up uh, or entering a decade of prosperity, which allows enormous amount of uh, freedom relative in relative terms for Iran and its uh, rulers and leaders to start uh, seeking to develop new projects to to 
and, and also at the same time to to think what they have to do to harness the forces of development. So the, it's a two sided question. So there's a lot of money coming in. Uh, there's a lot of development happening. Population growth is happening. Uh, just in the lead up to that, we've had a, a uh, in in 1963 there was another revolution in Iran. This is called the White Revolution, um, uh, which uh, the Shah establishment. Uh, puts in place uh, in order to basically redistribute land and through that uh, affect massive cultural and social change. The repercussions of that, which involved uh, massive population movements, changes in economic structure and also changes in social structure, in social classes, and I'm using class here very loosely, not in necessarily the Marxian way, but in terms of producing a lot of quote-unquote middle classes, which is a shifting ground in Iran even today, um, uh, that you can see in the 1970s. So that's the beginning of it. But at the same time, it is also when we... uh, increasingly realize the manifestations of this sense of, okay, what is our identity? What are we going to do with it? And uh, in this respect, both the Shah's establishment and the opposition share the same set of questions, incidentally, as to, you know, there is a danger of loss of identity. How do we react to, to massive and rapid development? What do we do about it? So all of these are coming into the public discourse, both officially and unofficially in terms of oppositionally speaking. And in, in, in that, uh, in the 19, uh, from the early 1980s onwards, we see the continuation of the discussion, uh, quote-unquote discussion, in, 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 in the built environment, in heritage, and in questions of identity, dominating, even after the Islamic Revolution, the, the discourse. Um, it's only after uh, the by the end of the 1990s that slightly this begins to slowly dissipate uh, it's never gone away but that period we have a, a plenty of projects and plenty of ways of thinking so it's not just architecture that seem to straddle the before and after the islamic revolution so this time period tries to capture that not just before and not just after but how these things have afterlives and what are the repercussions and that's a almost perfect segue. So again, there's actually there's quite a few very interesting case studies, and of course, we won't be able to talk about them all. But you know, you mentioned the idea of you know, and it's not a new theme in architecture how space is used as time moves on. Something that the average designer might not think about. And so, I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit about, and I'm going to hopefully I don't butcher this the the Shushtar now. Uh, collective housing yeah. project because again yeah. i that one st- stood out to me more because it had a very good analysis of what happened to it after the fact you know pros and cons so i was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit of course um Shushtarno is in many ways uh, was and remains an exemplary project um uh, first of all uh, let me preface it by saying it's uh, it it's done 
as I explained in the book, as we explain, I, I, I keep, when I say I, I have to clarify, this book is co-authored with Nigel Westbrook, so uh, who is a professor at University of Western Australia, and I have to uh, pay my respects to him as well. Uh, so what, when we were uh, writing about Tristano, and we're not, uh, by the way, we're not the first people who write about it, and I'm sure we won't be the last. So, yes, so others have uh, written about it as well. So... Shushtarno comes as an exemplary project in the context of this, the quest for uh, architectural models that could mitigate Iranian traditions and uh, questions of development that are, and of course accommodate uh, a class shift and a social shift and a population movement. And by that, I mean class shift in terms of making uh, what would have been uh, farmers in villages, essentially, into uh, industrial producers or industrial workers, because that's what it is. It's a company town. And also, therefore, through that, making a social class or engineering a social class. Again, engineering, I'm not using in a sinister way here, just as it happens. Uh, uh, And also uh, mitigating uh, their... Environmental, uh, if you like, memories, so that they can come up, they can live somewhere that has a sense of familiarity. And this comes out of the discussions that have happened in uh, international congresses uh, leading up to this. So, in any case, leading, uh, referring to Shushtarno, Shushtarno is done by one of the most remarkable architects of uh, contemporary Iran. He's fortunately he's still alive. He, he resides in Spain. Uh, the name is Kamran Diba. Uh, Mr. Diba uh, is, um, uh, I might also add that had he stayed in Iran, and I mentioned it in the book, I think, I can't remember correctly right now, but uh, had he stayed in Iran, they would have shot him, by the way. Uh, it was mentioned in the book, yes. <laughs> yes. So he can't go back, although he's respected and everybody knows him, but uh, because of his uh, family ties with uh, the queen of Iran, Queen Farah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Diba studied in in uh, Howard School of Architecture in the U.S. and he comes back to Iran uh, and he's the first person to study, uh, to, sorry, to to establish uh, uh, the idea of environmental architecture and environmental design. That's the terminologies that he uses, uh, and and he tries to work for and with the people, um, uh, which is very progressive even today actually. Um, And uh, following the discussions that had happened, and also his own uh, interests and desires, um, he was uh, given uh, the commission for this project, which was housing for an agribusiness. Now, what is an agribusiness? It is itself the result of the white revolution of the Shah. So we can see how things start in getting entangled into one another. The, the, the Shah system has produced or, or prompted new uh, modes of production. Those new modes of production have prompted, attracted new people. Those new people need to be settled somewhere in relation to that. That's where Diva is coming in. And what he does is he uh, cleverly, and artistically invents, if you like, images of tradition that are supposed to give you a sense of belonging. Uh, Our fieldwork, this comes through material, through uh, the construction, and I'm happy to elaborate on any part that you want, and also through the kind of spaces he puts together. Uh, 
when we spoke to people who lived there today at present, many people conceived of these spaces which are not traditional and I'm emphatic on this. These are not traditional spaces. These are modern built spaces, relatively speaking. They thought of this as traditional and they recognized it. And there are even people within uh, the residents, amongst the residents, who wanted to preserve this as heritage, which is perfectly fine as modern heritage, if you will. Um, uh, the space makes a lot of picturesque gestures, the kinds of which you see in other, for example, in Portugal, in, in the housing developments as well. So Debo is very well connected mentally, intellectually, to what's happening around the world. He brings it also in and interprets it in the Iranian scene with his own creativity. This is highly respectable. I'm not saying that he's pinching things from here and then, not at all. He's just being a creative person, interpreting it and doing things with the context. Um, the issues that came up later on, this was conceived as uh, as a pedestrian city, essentially, and with 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 spaces because it's a climatically hot environment uh, it it was conceived as spaces with lots of shade and and a lot of play on 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 the filigrees of open and closed spaces of little punctuations and and punctures in the walls and stuff like that and the unit of construction was conceived as the the room as opposed to a, a normal house that we see has a kitchen etc cetera, etc cetera. he thought if we get a unit of traditional life which is a room it's multi-purpose it's flexible let's work on that basis and 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 the design was made on the basis of load bearing walls uh, so it was a, a, and 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 vaults and the rest of it um, what happened subsequently is also interesting uh, that model didn't exactly work through time. Now, uh, and I'm here foregoing the explanation of how the additions that, uh, the new additions and extensions of the city somewhat undermined it, but even within the old, uh, uh, the, the original development, if you will, uh, people started in interfering with the housing units. They started making open kitchens or kitchenettes in their houses, uh, initially, there was no air conditioning. They have now air conditioning on it. Uh, economic demands have caused uh, the roofing of some gardens or making of additions to rent out rooms because there's a university nearby to students and the rest. And uh, the, the, the odd bit or the predictable bit, perhaps even, is that the pedestrian alleyways are now made open mostly to cars, and the courtyards have turned into de facto garage spaces. One of the reasons is that, for example, in the Iranian economy, for many years, it has been for 40 years almost like that, um, a, a car is an economic asset. And therefore, the price, rather than depreciating, it appreciates after you buy the car. You don't want to leave your asset, you know, 500 meters away from your home and you can't see what's going on with it. You want to have it nearby. So people started bringing, bringing these in. And, and that has, has somehow changed the whole space. But still, it was a, a highly respectable exper experiment. It won uh, the uh, 1986. It wins the Aga Khan Award for Islamic Architecture, which kind of gives it the seal of approval as an exemplary Islamic architecture, which, as I just explained, the origins of which are not necessarily Islamic at all. 
there you go. <laughs> oh, appreciate that. And, and again, in the book, you do mention that he earned, you know, person non grata status. With, yep. With the government. Yep. And, and so, uh, yeah, pre- very thorough. Thank you so much. And so you had, uh, while you were just talking, you had mentioned the international congresses, which seemed to kind of spike in attendance with, you know, kind of the, the rise of the oil revenue. And so, of course, there's there's multiple you talk about, and they all have very different kind of themes and agendas. But one concept that seemed to be in almost everyone, even similar terminology, is the idea of habitat, appropriate habitat, you call it. And yeah. in fact, you even mentioned during a specific time period, and I the Pahlavi period, yep. that it, the idea of appropriate habitat is still somewhat of an issue. And so I was wondering, I guess my first question that maybe be a little leading is that just a is that something that has improved or is it still an issue that is struggled with and i guess why is that something that needs to be tackled so many times the idea of an appropriate habitat is is a direct response to uh the notion of the presence of of development in developmental contexts so we it's prompted by the notion of social change. Here we're having a society that's developing, but it has a tradition and that people who may be, and I'm just interpreting what they thought, people who may be in the traditional frame of mind, they how do they bridge that frame of mind with a very modern contemporary frame of mind uh, to suit development? And... Uh, what sorts of things do they keep? How do change? How do changes happen? And 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 uh, initially, especially when the congresses are there, it comes off the back of a worry about we're going to lose our identity. The concern with identity is part of that. Um, so, yes, there was a discussion about appropriate habitat. It, in fact, uh, these congresses, which begin in the seventies and they were stopped in, in nineteen seventy six. They they prompt the uh, the uh, uh, UN habitat uh, com- uh, conferences as I mentioned as we mentioned in the book, um, and and uh, the thing is that um, when you look at this, uh, much of that is coming off the back of works by people such as Doxiadis, as well as people by Nad- like Nadir Adalan, who's also alive and residing in America, um, and others in these congresses. So the question is, how do we formulate something that can preserve, so it's a conservationist, culturally speaking, approach. How do we preserve these cultures? How do we preserve their way of life? Um, however, and that's that, that was the question, uh, before I move on to the next part of it, that's the question that became very quickly ideologized. Uh, after the Islamic Revolution, because the idea initially was, and Iran still is, a, a Muslim society. It's, it's uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I have to be clear. It's not an Islamist society, despite its government, but it's an it's a Muslim society, culturally speaking. Uh, the idea was that okay, well, uh, we have to look into Islamic sources and references, and and uh, congruent with the time. Therefore, we have to look at typologies, questions of privacy, gendered spaces, if we're speaking about Iran, and, and as well as issues of uh, the harsh climate that are at some places uh, within the country, especially the central part of the country. Uh, 
So um, in that respect, uh, when the Islamic Revolution happens, the load of Islamic rhetoric in the production of Habitat becomes much stronger because the, the, the central issue with Habitat is that your daily life determines what sort of identity you live your identity on your day-to-day life and what's the space of your day-to-day life it's your habitat that's what it is that's that's how it works and um uh, yeah that i don't have anything else to say on this one sorry (laughs) no i i think that's more thank you so much (laughs) and so again of course there's so many more case studies and the big themes we could talk about but you know one question i always want to know is now i you know Writing a book takes a long time, not easy. Now that that's finally finished, you know, what has been your next project? What What's coming up in the future? What's taking up your time now? I'm uh, working on, on uh, two things. Uh, uh, there's a bifurcation, actually, in what I'm working on. I'm working on a, um, uh, in a totally unrelated area on the, uh, the question of... Uh, heritage or the pasts and how they relate to borders and boundary making. So what happens when things work transnationally? How do people claim it? And therefore, there's a question of nationalism, there's a question of imaginations of the past, and something we call border straddling. We, that is my, uh, myself and a co-author, uh, uh, David Harvey. Um, so that's one project that I'm working on. But in, in the built environment, we're, we're going to... Uh, Working, I'm um, I'm hoping to work with Nigel Westbrook again, and we will be looking into the development of a particular set of typologies of almost underground architecture, if you will, uh, that that happen in the 1970s and then dissipate slowly in the 1980s. Um, so, what happens in that period and a series of n- unbuilt projects that are there? So, what happened in that unbuilt? part of identity seeking in Iran. So that's one of the projects that we're working on. Interesting. Perhaps we'll talk again in the in the future. I would love that. Thank you very much. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It is my pleasure. Thank you. And for everybody listening, the book is Development, Architecture, and the Formation of Heritage in Late 20th Century Iran. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.